Have you ever been in a situation where it felt like you were wanting to be kind or nice or help someone and, and it just seemed like they lashed out at you? That seemed to be the premise for many of the Wild Kingdom episodes. It was one of the earlier animal shows on television. It was hosted by Marlon Perkins, co-hosted by his friend Jim Fowler. It was on the air for several years. Now, a lot of times what would happen is they would go out to rescue an animal or relocate it to a safer location or tag it for research. And then you would see what would happen when the animal would not want to go or not want to be tagged. I remember one episode in particular. Uh, Marlon Perkins and his assistant on that show, who happened to be Stan Brock, were in South America and they were trying to relocate an anaconda snake. Now, anacondas are huge. They're part of the boa constrictor family and they can grow between 20 and 30 feet in length and be over 550 pounds. They are huge. And in South America, they can eat livestock. And so the farmers there, if they come upon one, they'll kill it so that it doesn't harm anyone or anything. And so here was this anaconda and Marlon and Stan were going to take it to a safe location away from the farm. But they lassoed it. You probably didn't know that you could lasso a snake. But they lassoed it, and it started to crawl over into a drainage ditch full of water. And so to save the snake, they had to run and jump in the water with it. And they were trying to wrestle the snake, and it was huge. Uh, this one in particular was wrapped around Marlin's waist two or three times. And then a few feet away, it was wrapped around Stan's neck. Now, the snake kept drying, trying to drag them into deeper water and pull them under. And so Marlon, who is in his late 70s at the time, is wrestling this snake and trying to keep his head above water, trying to make it over to Stan so he can finally release the snake from his neck. Well, eventually they were able to get it to the shore and put it in a bag and safely relocate it to a, a better home for it. Now, thankfully... I have never, ever had that experience. But I have had to take care of snakes in the past. Back when I was in college, I was a biology major. And one of the jobs I had to help pay for my college education was I took care of all the animals in the biology department. Now, there were lots of fish in all the different aquariums. There were frogs. There were mealworms for different animals to eat. There was a prairie dog. There were rats, and there were snakes. There were two snakes in particular. There was a bull snake that was about five or six feet in length, and then there was a rat snake that was just a little bit shorter than that. And I had never handled snakes before this job, and I wasn't really excited about starting, but I needed the job, and I was anxious to learn about the animals, and I really did learn a lot. Now, part of my job was to take the young rats and feed them to the snakes. Now, snakes aren't always hungry, and there's no precise science, and so you really have to get attuned to the snake to know when it's hungry because it was really difficult when they weren't hungry. For example, the rat snake, it would kill the rat and then just leave it. That meant I had to reach back in and remove the deceased rat. As bad as that was, the bull snake was even harder because the bull snake wouldn't kill the rat if it wasn't hungry. 
the rat would just run around and eventually it would start attacking the snake. That meant I had to reach in and retrieve the live rat. Now, at that point, I am trying to rescue the rat who doesn't realize I'm trying to save it and he's running around trying to avoid me. I think he just remembers the fact that I put him in there in the first place. But now I'm trying to save it and he's darting all around the cage and I'm trying not to get bitten by the snake or the rat. Now, eventually, I got pretty good at handling both. It was a good experience for me to to kind of encounter things that I was very uncomfortable with. There will be times in life that we all face difficulties, uncomfortable situations. How are we going to handle people who kind of lash out at us? People who seem to want to drag us under. People who want to snap at us. How do we share God's love in those situations? Today we're concluding our sermon series, Wild Kingdom, celebrating God's creation. We've had a fun time looking at different passages of scriptures that highlight animals and looking at the ways they apply to our lives today. This morning's scripture is one of the more animal-heavy passages that are in the Bible. We have uh, sheep and wolves and serpents or snakes and doves. Now, these are animals that really don't play well together, and that's the point. Jesus is telling the disciples that he's sending them out to share the message of God's word and that there will be people who don't receive that message very well. And so he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Now, that passage was actually very familiar to the disciples. It was a a Hebrew saying Because they referred to themselves as the people of Israel. They were sheep among the wolves of the world, the other pagan religions. And so they had to be on their guard. So the disciples were familiar with that. And he says, I want you to go into the town and when you get there, find a home and stay there. And if things go well, let your peace be on that home. But if things don't go well, let your peace return to you. Now, Jesus isn't telling the disciples that they need to withdraw any goodwill toward that house or take away any kindness. What he's saying is that when you go out in the world, there will be people who don't accept the message. There will be people who don't care that you're being nice to them. In those situations, let your peace still be with you. You're not responsible for their actions. Let your peace come back to you and and be at peace in your own life. And then Jesus tells them that when they leave a town, if that town hasn't welcomed them or received the word, they need to shake the dust off of their feet. Now, again, this is a familiar phrase to the disciples. It was Hebrew tradition that whenever you went traveling to a foreign country and then returned home, before you crossed back over and stepped foot onto holy land, you would shake the dust off of your feet. And then Jesus tells them that I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves and therefore be as wise as serpents and harmless or as innocent as the dove. Well, how is it that we can do that in our own lives where we can share God's love to people who just don't play nice? I think there are three important things that we can take from this passage that can help us be that type of person, a person of wisdom and peace, and be the kind of person who shares God's love with the world. 
The first point is to know that we will encounter people who are different from us. I love it when someone makes a comment about someone else and they say, well, they always think they're right. Of course they do. We do too. If we didn't, we would think and do other things. The problem, however, is when we are resistant or unyielding, when they or we don't want to hear any other comments or discussion. Now, since it's really difficult to change others, it's more productive to start with ourselves. So how can we be more accepting? How can we be kinder to others, knowing that we'll all face differences in the world? I think sometimes it's really important that we start to become comfortable with the uncomfortable situations in the world around us. Now, for me, I had no idea that taking care of those snakes in college would ever be anything that would help me later in life. I'm pretty sure that I would never have wanted that. But just a couple of years ago, I was out in the backyard, and I was working in a flower bed, and my son, Brooks, who was probably about 11 or 12 at the time, was in another part of the backyard. And I happened to see a little garter snake kind of crawling through the bushes. Now, it was very tiny. It was just about a foot long. But I knew that Brooks would want to see it and that by the time he got over to my place, it would already be gone. And so very tenderly and quickly, I picked it up. And I took it over to Brooks and I showed him and he was able to hold it and pet it and And together, we were able to see just what a delicate uh, creature this was. And not too long, we put it back and let it go on its way. Now, I tell you, in that moment, I scored some serious mom points for my son. (laughs) It's pretty awesome for him to know that his mom picked up a snake. But more importantly, in that moment, it was just like this teaching moment to show that We are all called to be respectful and and kind to God's creation. That the things that might make us uncomfortable really can be things of great beauty and, and we can respect them. For Jesus, he sent the disciples out and he told them, don't go to the Gentiles, only go to the Jewish communities. Now, the disciples themselves were Jewish. And so in effect, he's sending them out to their own people. And so when they arrive, they're arriving in communities that, that they're familiar with the language, they're familiar with their background and with their culture and with the food they eat. And this is a wonderful beginning for the disciples because this is kind of their training ground because all they have to deal with are just the differences in personalities and in thought. Later on, Jesus would send them out to the Gentiles. After the resurrection, Jesus would send the disciples out into all the world. And he said to baptize people in my name and teach them all the things that you have been taught. And so in that circumstance, the the disciples would have faced people all around the world who were very different from them. They ate different things. They practiced different religions. They had different languages and different backgrounds. And so in this passage, it's a wonderful beginning to help the disciples begin to become more comfortable in uncomfortable situations. If we could open up our minds to be more tolerant and accepting of things that are different or even uncomfortable, we will find that the world expands for us. For Carol Perkins, when she married her husband, Marlon Perkins, She knew that he was a very different personality than hers. 
She was a kindergarten teacher, and she said, I wasn't the outdoorsy type. I wasn't adventurous. I didn't even like to go outdoors all that much. But she talked about the very first trip that they took after they married. They went to the Congo on safari. Now, she had been a real trooper about all of it. And that particular day, they had seen all the sights. And after dinner, she was exhausted. And so rather than sit and tell stories around the campfire, she decided to head to bed. So she went in her tent And she went over to her cot and reached over for the pillow when all of a sudden this large lizard jumped from the pillow, ran up her arm and onto her chest, and it paused there for a moment before jumping to the tent sidewall. Well, naturally, she screamed out in surprise, and everyone came running. And there was Marlon, her new husband, and he exclaimed, Oh, honey, aren't you lucky to see it up so close? Now, that wasn't the reaction that she expected. And in that moment, she knew that her life was forever changed. She had a decision. Was she going to be open and embrace all these differences that are obvious between them? Would she allow herself to think differently? I mean, for her, she thought that a lizard jumping on her at night was a startling situation at the least, But could she embrace that for some, it could be a blessing, as long as it didn't bite you? She opened up the way that she would view things, and she allowed herself to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations, and it really expanded her world. She started going on as many trips as she could with her husband. He passed away in 1986, and she would continue on. She passed away just a couple of years ago, But at her death, she had led more than 32 safaris by herself to Africa. She led five more in places like Australia and throughout India. She was an incredible woman, and it came with that choice, a decision to be open to the differences in the world around her, to be open to the people around her that would be very different and think differently than her. Second, We must know who we are. We must be smart about this. Jesus says that when you go out to the world, there will be people who try to harm you, people who try to bring you down. And his advice to the disciples and to all of us is to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We are to be smart about the way we approach things, and yet we're to take the high road and do no harm. We are to be people who seek out wisdom and peace. Now, that can be possible if we have a strong sense of self, if we know who we are and what we stand for. If we will hone that identity in ourselves, it can help us guide our lives. It can help us decide which arguments to walk away from and those that we need to participate in. It can help us make decisions about the priorities in our lives. It's something we ought to strive for, to be people of wisdom and peace. This past week was the first Nelson Mandela Day since his death last year. Back in 2009, the United Nations General Assembly made a unanimous decision to declare Nelson Mandela's birthday as an international holiday to be celebrated by works that make a difference in the world. 
So this past July 18th was the first that has happened since his passing. Now, Nelson Mandela is someone who has been recognized worldwide as a, a man of wisdom and peace. And yet, early in his years, in his fight against apartheid, there would be different tactics that he would take. He had been a member of the African National Congress, and early on, he had been uh, part of its very core values, and that was at its very center, nonviolence. That was unquestionable. You would never use violence. But for Nelson Mandela, he started to get disillusioned by that. He started to get frustrated, and over time, he became convinced that that wasn't the way. And so in 1961, Nelson Mandela went before the ANC and argued for organized violence. He asked for the group to develop a militia, and he himself went for military training. He started to read books and resources on revolutions and guerrilla warfare. He learned how to make bombs. Now, it None of that really came to fruition because he was sent to prison with a life sentence. Now, how is it that somebody who was dedicated to organized violence goes into prison, spends 27 years there under brutal circumstances, and actually comes out to be a man of incredible peace? It's because Nelson Mandela really developed his sense of identity. While he was in prison, there were terrible circumstances. Prejudice was terrible. The white South Africans were housed elsewhere. But even the South Africans who were of mixed race or who were Indian were treated better than black South Africans. They were made to wear short pants like schoolboys because the prison officials wanted the prisoners to not even feel like men. They refused to allow any news sources into the prison because they wanted the prisoners to feel disconnected. They limited the visits and the communication with their family and friends because they wanted the prisoners to feel abandoned and alone. They refused to have any clocks or watches in prison because they wanted the prisoners to feel disoriented. And then they would subject them to hard labor out in the quarry where they would chop up rocks and pulverize them for no purpose all day long, hours and hours, a meaningless task so that they would feel inhuman. Mandela had a decision because he, he could lose himself, he could give in to all of that, or he could decide who he was prison was a place that really sought to strip the prisoner of all his identity. And for Nelson Mandela, he had to define himself. And so he worked to study and, and read and become more committed to his resolve and, and the person he was created to be. He would share with his fellow prisoners, and he was a source of strength for, for them. One of the things that would help him was a poem called Invictus. The last stanza reads like this, and it talks about identity. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. For Nelson Mandela, he had no control over his circumstances. 
and yet he had ultimate control of who he was. He wasn't responsible for the hatred of apartheid, but he was responsible for not allowing his own heart to be consumed with hate in retaliation. He had to decide who he was and allow that to guide his life. And so he truly was this man of wisdom and of peace. We're going to face situations where we are not in control of the circumstances. We're going to face people who lash out at us. And yet we are not responsible for their actions, but we are responsible for our reactions to them. Will we allow our hearts to be full of bitterness or anger? We can't allow ourselves to be defined by the circumstances around us or the people around us. We are defined by the fact that we are children of God, and we are sent out into the world to share that message with others. We have to know who we are. And third, we are called to have a passion for the mission. Now, Jesus sends the disciples out, and he tells them, if you go to any place and they don't receive this message, then when you leave, shake the dust off your feet And I tell you the truth, it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the final days than it would be for that town. Now that's harsh. But you have to remember that Jesus is telling that to the disciples and not to the towns where they're going to minister. But still, why would Jesus pick that as his going away pep talk? Why why was he sending them away with that message? The story of Sodom and Gomorrah was a very dark one. It's found in Genesis in the Bible, and it starts with Abraham and his nephew Lot and all of their families living together on the plains. But what happened was that their flocks grew too numerous. They had too many sheep and goats between them that the land couldn't sustain them all. And so they decided to part ways. And Abraham told Lot, look, I'll give you the choice of the land. If you choose the land to the right, I'll head to the left. If you choose left, I'll head to the right. And Lot looked out over all the land, and he chose the well-watered plains of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot made his residence there. Now, quite a bit later, an angel of the Lord comes to Abraham and says that the Lord is going to destroy the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the reason that they're evil is because they are brutal to outsiders. They show no hospitality or kindness whatsoever. And yet Abraham pleads on behalf of these two cities. He says, if, we fought, if there's 50 righteous people there, would you spare the cities? And God agrees. And so that encourages Abraham. He says, what about 40 people? And God agrees. And then he continues on, 30 people, 20, 10. And every time God agrees. Now, it's then that Abraham stops. Abraham knew that his nephew Lot and his nephew's wife and their two daughters lived there. Why didn't he continue? Why didn't he ask God to spare the cities just for the sake of the cities themselves? And yet he stopped. And so this story, this message is ringing in the ears of the disciples. How many people will they intervene for? Perhaps Jesus told them this story to kind of give them the the seriousness of the situation or to help put their own feelings in perspective. Or maybe Jesus told them this to help them develop a compassion for the people. 
You know, if, if you're trying to do something for somebody and they're rude to you and you don't care about them, it's pretty easy to walk away. And it might have been easy for the disciples to walk away if they hadn't had any compassion. Now, this is all kind of conjecture about why he told this, but it's interesting to know that in Scripture, we don't have any evidence of the disciples coming back and telling how bad it was, how awful the people were. But we do have a couple occasions where they came back and told Jesus situations where it seems like it went pretty well. In Luke, it says that the apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done. In Mark, it gives us a little bit more. It says that the apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And so maybe they were able to develop this compassion that even if they were ridiculed and, and criticized, they would have compassion on the people and stay there to minister to them. We will face that in life. And so we have to have this passion within us for the people that we're serving. For Nelson Mandela, in the movie Invictus, he's played by Morgan Freeman, and the story is of him interacting with the South African rugby captain, who is Francois Pianat. And it shows him interacting with him, even in the midst of all the criticism that Mandela is going through. Everybody is upset with how he is starting to make these decisions from the, the white South Africans to the black South Africans. And yet, Nelson Mandela knows who he is. He knows he is a child of God. And he knows that God has created the entire world for all people, not just for some. And so he wants a South Africa that represents all people. He doesn't give in and appease one group or another. He holds out for something that will benefit the entire country. Now, in the movie, it shows him giving the poem Invictus to the rugby captain, Piana, but actually, in real life, he gave him a speech that was done by Theodore Roosevelt. And the speech was entitled, uh, Citizenship in a Republic. And there's a portion of that that's fittingly entitled, The Man in the Arena. And that's what was read by the captain of the rugby team. It says, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms and great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. We will face people who ridicule us and criticize us and, and seek to bring us down. But even if we give our very best, we will fall short from time to time. But there will be times that we know great victory of the mission that we embark on. And at the very least, if we fail, when we fail, because we will, when we fail, we will do so daring greatly. If we know who we are, 
if we strive to be people of wisdom and peace, we can encounter the world around us that will sometimes not receive the message well. And yet we have a passion for making the lives of people better, for sharing God's love with them, bringing hope to the world. And so we're committed to that cause. And nothing can take away our resolve and our identity. Because in the end, we are the master of our fate. And we are the captains of our souls. It is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.